families. And um, but Lord, anyway, I pray tonight. It's kind of a little dealing with some spiritual warfare and some other aspects. But I just pray, Lord, speak through me. Let Your Word go out, Lord, as living seeds of truth. The parable of the seed and the sower. Let these seeds of truth go out in the good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, Lord. In here, but around the world, wherever this goes, as I, you know, people hear it all over. And Lord, I pray that this. These seeds of truth will be watered by your spirit, Lord, and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, that your light will shine forth and dispel any darkness, any lies of the enemy, any deception. And Lord, bring truth and revelation. Let your word go forth as a powerful hammer, Lord, that will tear down, will destroy the strongholds of the enemy. And your word will be as the washing of the water of the word, cleansing your people. Lord, I pray for the grace for all of us just to be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just locked into what you're speaking and show us what you want us to see and help us have eyes and ears of the Spirit, but our minds to be able to really understand and wrap around what you're speaking to us tonight, that we'll never be the same. We'll really grasp the word of the Lord and take it home and remember it and apply it, and it'll be a powerful time. Lord, we thank you. We believe now in Jesus' name. All right, I'm going to share tonight. A little bit about like a war on Christmas, but in reality, this is more about a spirit of religion and about being free from that, okay? So, it's going to be a little different. This is kind of a unique sermon for me to preach on, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. All right, here's a couple things. How many of you guys love Jesus tonight? Amen? (laughs) All right, here's some things about our Jesus. First off... Jesus was the son, he is the son of David, okay? Um, there was an interesting scripture, I actually got this from, uh, Brother Ed gave me this, and I, I looked at it, it was really neat, but uh, there was an evil king, a descendant of King David named Jeconiah, and um, there was a curse that he would not have descendants upon the throne, and this was right before Judah went into captivity, Babylonian captivity, so he was kind of, he was the last king, he was very evil, But it was interesting because the prophecy is that Jesus would sit on the throne of David and here this descendant of David gets a curse put on him from God by Jeremiah the prophet that he's not going to have somebody sitting on the throne. So how does God get around this? The Lord knows exactly what he's doing, doesn't he? And so God, um, instead of going down a male line like that, he somehow worked this whole thing out. I'm going to say some things tonight that really... I believe will will be a blessing to you, but he works it out where a little young woman named Mary is a descendant of David and carries that DNA, and God himself placed God's DNA and intermixed that with David's DNA in Mary's womb, and Jesus came forth as the firstborn, okay, and he is entitled to the throne of David through that line. Isn't that awesome? So God circumvented that that um, curse by coming through a woman to bring forth the Messiah. Some things maybe people have never thought about was that, you know, in the Garden of Eden, it said Eve was deceived, and so she was the first one to kind of move down a wrong direction. But God used a woman to bring, where, where Eve was used to help snuff out the light, if you will, God used a woman to bring the light of the world into the world and kind of reopen that back up. But here's some things about Jesus. First off, 
He's of the throne of David. He is a descendant, so to speak, of David. He carries that DNA. And when he comes, he's going to set up his kingdom from Jerusalem and reign um, as um, what's called Yeshua ben David, Mashiach ben David, the son of David. All right, here's some other things. God somehow worked this thing out. This is amazing. Where Mary, and this was, Mary was the line of David, so he had this royal line. But God worked it out to where the descendants of Aaron, the, the high priesthood, that somehow these two bloodlines became in close relation. Isn't that amazing? Because you read about how Mary and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, was married to Zechariah, descendant of Aaron, and they were giving birth, remember, to John the Baptist, who was a direct descendant of Aaron, that somehow this descendant of David and this descendant of Aaron came in close relation. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus comes forth from the womb. He's the rightful heir to David's throne. He is the son of God. He's 100% man, but he's 100% God. And he's walking the earth as the descendant of David, as the son of David, and the son of God. And he comes upon John the Baptist. Now, what you've got to understand, if you read Luke 1, verse 5, John the Baptist was a direct descendant of Aaron, so John the Baptist should have been the high priest of Israel. But the reason why Caiaphas was the high priest is because of corruption, political corruption. We're talking about a religious spirit. You guys ever seen church politics before? All right, because of religious corruption, Caiaphas sat on that, um, that throne, if you will, of the high priest, but it belonged to John the Baptist. And the way that the priesthood was passed would be through an immersion called a mikveh or a baptism that took place from the high priest when it was his time to retire. He would um, go through this with his son and he would immerse him in water and he would, set, he would uh, consecrate him and ordain him as the next high priest. And so when Jesus came to John the Baptist, you have to understand what's going on. He wasn't coming there because he needed his sins forgiven. Amen. He was coming there because he said, John said, no, 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 I need you to baptize me. And Jesus said, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, the priesthood was passing on to the Messiah. Isn't that something? So now Jesus was standing there, son of David, the king. Okay? But whenever John the Baptist immersed him and said, hey, I got to decrease, he's got to increase, they both understood what was going on. And John the Baptist was saying, I'm the rightful um, high priest of Israel, but I'm passing that on to you now and I must decrease. Now you're the great high priest. Isn't that awesome? And not only that, but John the Baptist, the Bible says he went forth in the spirit of Elijah. So he carried the mantle of Elijah, and he was a prophet of God. And whenever he baptized Jesus, that prophetic mantle passed to Jesus as well. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a priest of Jew and Gentile both. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, of both Jew and Gentile. And you know what Melchizedek means? Melech means king. Zedek means righteous. He's the king of righteousness. Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, is son of David. He's king, but he's also our great high priest. So Jesus, when he walked the earth, he walked the earth as the son of God, but he is king priest and prophet of God it all landed on Jesus you see what I'm saying God watched over all of this 
to make sure all of it ended up on his son. And so in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, Satan entered the serpent and deceived Eve. And from that time, God spoke and said, hey, you know, he gave these curses to mankind. We know all of that. But he told the serpent, he said, you're going to crawl on your belly. And how many of you guys know this to this day? You get the heebie-jeebies when you see snakes. Amen? All right. Anybody else? So the snake is unfortunately cursed. But on top of that, he's speaking to the devil. And he said, there's going to come a time when through this woman, there's going to be a seed come through this woman. And you will strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And it was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And how Satan tried to strike at Christ's heel through the cross, but through the cross, where Satan thought he had won, through that same cross, Jesus raised from the dead and crushed the head of Satan. Now I'm talking about some things about Christmas here, but I'm ultimately working toward uh, a religious spirit, and I think you'll see it. So Mary believed the word of the Lord. Now, you remember this story. Zechariah, being the priest, he was a descendant of Aaron, but he was not high priest. Uh, Caiaphas, through corruption, was. But Zechariah, it was his turn to go in and burn incense and worship God. He's in there praying, and you guys know as well as I do, if you're alone in this big, giant, dark temple, and the only thing lighting the place is the menorah. It's real quiet. You're in there burning incense, and all of a sudden, some being appears to you and starts talking to you. You know Zachariah was scared, right? Amen. Anyway, so this angel was there, and the angel told him, I know that your wife is older, and you've not had a, a child, but you're, she's going to get pregnant, and you're going to have a son. And he prophesied, the angel prophesied to him about John the Baptist, and Zechariah did not really believe. I would hope that if an angel came to me and told me something, that I would probably believe it. But he didn't really believe it. And he said, how will I know this is the truth? And the angel said, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until the baby's born, which he was. But look at the difference. When Mary, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Mary and said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the Spirit of God will cause you to become pregnant with the Son of God, she said, be it unto me as you've spoken. She believed God. So, see, this is the important thing. Both of these two heard from God, but one believed God and one didn't. Remember that. When God speaks to us, we need to believe him. Amen? And step out in faith. The next thing is, it, it was always God's will for the nations to be saved. It was never God's plan from the very beginning for just one nation, being Israel, to be saved. Israel's, Israel was to be a light to the nations. But God told Abraham, through your seed... The seed being Christ. Through your seed, Abraham, the nations will be blessed. It was always God's will to reach out to the entire world with salvation. But think about for a minute what Mary had to carry. Mary had the Son of God in her womb, but with that, everybody knew that Joseph wasn't the dad. And you know as well as I do, most people, probably nobody except Joseph and maybe her parents, none of them believed that she was actually impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and this was actually an act of God, they probably just believed she was in adultery and trying to cover it up and lie. And so Mary, even though she was being used in such an incredible way by God to be able to bring Jesus into the world, there was a stigma attached to that where she probably was talked about and persecuted 
and was looked down upon. And it's the same way today. If you're going to go after God with all your heart and God's really going to anoint you and use you in a significant way, you have to understand there's a stigma that comes with that. And probably there's going to be people that mock and make fun and all of that, and that goes with the territory. I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Spare bear with me. Revelation 12, verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head was 12 stars, a crown of 12 stars. This speaks of the nation of Israel. The 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. And she was with, tri- with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. This is talking about the Messiah coming forth. Jesus being born through Israel. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now this is speaking of Satan, obviously, but you can see the seven heads and ten horns. You can begin to see the the end-time prophecy of the Antichrist and all that, which I can't get into, but there's a lot intermixed in this. The tail swept a third of the stars from heaven, which is where... People believe it it was talking about Lucifer's fall and a third of the angels came with him. But here's the point. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she might, so the dragon might devour the child. See, Satan's kingdom does not attack real strong. uh, Let me put it a different way. Satan's kingdom wants to destroy something at its infancy stage. He knows, he's smart enough to know, and people that know anything about spiritual warfare know not to just write off the devil's kingdom. You've you got to be intelligent, okay? And you, you know and you know how to pray. But anyway, and so Satan's kingdom, when Moses was born, he incited Pharaoh to throw all those babies into the Nile. He was trying to destroy Moses. Somehow Satan knows when these things are up. When Jesus was born, he did the same thing. He incited um, the leader of that time, Herod, to, to come in and slaughter all the male children. Remember that? And it fulfilled that scripture. Matthew talked about a voice heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. And they went through and killed all those children. But God, the angel had appeared to Joseph and said, take the child, flee to Egypt. And he escaped right out from under him. But the point is that Satan was trying to kill Moses right in an infancy state. He was trying to kill Jesus right when he was born. And whenever God starts really doing something, Satan is going to try to kill it at its infancy stage. That's why you've got to press into God. These times, like we're in with River of Life, where you have a season change and you have a time where you're about to come out of the wilderness and go into the promised land, and it's significant. You know, somehow, I don't know how, but Satan's kingdom picks up on that. And here you are, you're going toward the promised land, but remember this. The children of Israel, when they were coming out of the wilderness and they were about to go into the promised land, what stood right in front of them was two kings and their armies. One of them was Sion, king of Bashan. And Sion means tempest, like a storm. The other one was Og. How would you like to be named Og? Og, and he was a Nephilim. It said he was a giant, so he was like a Goliath. And so Israel was about to possess their promised land, but they had to go through a giant. They had to go through a Goliath to get there. And they had to go through the storms that began to stir up in front of them, Sion. And that's exactly how it is. I, I really appreciate Dutch Sheets had talked about this. It always stayed with me. 
He said, whenever you're at a Kairos time, when you're really about to break into something, it's like your time. He said, those are the times when Satan will really try to clamp down and cause people to get out of faith and to give up and walk away before you get the breakthrough. Think about the children of Israel when it came time for Moses to leave Haran, I'm sorry, to leave where he was at um, in Midian and to come back and take them out of Egypt. Right at that time, Moses comes in, remember? And he tells Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. But whenever Moses came in and made that declaration, Pharaoh said, take away the straw and be even more hard on them than, than you were before. You see what I'm saying? It's like right when they were at the, a major breakthrough. They had been in Egypt for, I believe, it's around 400 years or something. They had been there, and it was their Kairos time that they were going to get out of bondage. They were going to get their breakthrough. And God sent them a deliverer. And what happened? Pharaoh began to you know, try to press down even harder. That's what happens. But if you'll press on with Jesus, you'll get the breakthrough. Okay? All right. Let me shift gears now and talk about the religious spirit. Right, I'm going to move kind of quickly. I put all the, the scripture in there so you can follow along. But the Antichrist counterfeit religious spirit. All right, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But by this you will know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. All right, so here's some things. I'm going to use Christmas as an example, but I'm also going to use some other examples because I'm trying to make a point about a religious spirit. And I believe it all makes sense at the end. All right, the Antichrist spirit. Christ means the holy and the anointed one. So when you deal with an Antichrist spirit, you're dealing with um, an unholy, anti-anointing spirit. Does that make sense? Holy and anointed one. So when you deal with an Antichrist spirit, it's anti-holiness and anti-anointing. Let me say it one more time. Christ means holy and anointed one. It's anti-holy and it's anti-anointing. So when the anointing comes, that, that antichrist spirit will arise in protest. The antichrist spirit, we know anti to mean like an enemy. So we know that this is an enemy of Jesus, which is going to be very clear as I go through this, that people that have a religious spirit think they're being used of God, but they're actually an enemy of the Lord. And also, it's a counterfeit. So the Antichrist will be like, anti can be translated another or other in Greek. So the Antichrist will be like a false messiah or another messiah. And so the Antichrist spirit, you have to understand, it is a counterfeit spirit. It's a religious spirit that pretends to be the spirit of Jesus. But it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit. And so you see all of that right there just from that name. The Bible gives that spirit that name. It's anti-holy. It will not, it will be, let me put it this way, it will be against preaching holiness and repentance. 
Number two, it's anti-anointing. It will be against the anointing and against revival. And number three, it is an enemy of the Lord. And number four, it's a counterfeit spirit. So when it comes, it will come like an angel of light. It will pretend to be the Spirit of God, but it's not. And Jezebel traffics very strong in this area, okay? So let me get some things here. All right, here we go. There's seven major feasts in the Bible that God has listed. From Passover to Tabernacles. You guys are familiar with this, so I'm not going to rabbit trail. All right, then there's two more feasts that were added later. You have Purim and Hanukkah. And Purim was added in the days of Mordecai when Haman tried to destroy Israel and Esther was used so mightily to be a deliverer. Remember that? And then we know that um, Hanukkah was celebrated because the Greeks, Syrians, Syrian Greek army came in, tried to destroy Israel, and God used the Maccabees to push him back. So those two feasts were added later. So there's, a, there's nine right there. And I believe that Christmas is kind of like a tenth feast, if you will. It's like uh, ten being completion. And let me show you this. In the Bible, you have to understand numbers, numerology. Number one, one is the number of God. Two is the number of unity. Three is the number of resurrection. Four is the number of the world, the four seasons, all that. Five is the number of grace. Remember, Jesus was pierced in five places. Six is the number of sinful man, because man was created on the sixth day. Seven is the number of perfection. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Nine is the number of judgment. And ten is the number of completion. And so when the Lord did this, I believe all of this worked into his plans. And I'm sharing this because I've seen Satan as a religious spirit really begin to come against this Christmas time um, because Jesus is getting so much glory during that time. And it's coming from a religious crowd. But I'm not going to dwell on that too much. I'm mainly talking about a religious spirit in, as a whole in general, okay? So let me tell you a few quick things. So historically speaking, the early church would celebrate the birth of Christ. But when the Catholic church came to power, they began to try to intermingle things that were Christian and things that were pagan and kind of bring them together. And that's why you get, for example, around Easter time, the whole world wonders, what does bunny and eggs have to do? And it's because the Catholic Church has mixed that um, Ishtar stuff in there. So that's where that comes from. And so obviously we need to be celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but just leave out the pagan garbage. Amen? Yeah. And uh, some people are real hardcore about only the feasts that are in the Bible or, or feasts that, that are connected to Israel which I honor that completely, okay? But I also have seen where, how many of you guys know that there's an element there where something can be holy to one person but not to the, to the next? I, I saw some people, for example, this last year that were celebrating Hanukkah, and there was nothing holy about this celebration, okay? And there was alcohol and drugs and everything else, so it's just not. So, I mean, to them, it was an ungodly event, but to other people, it could be a very holy time where you remember God's deliverance. Does that make sense? So, it has to do with your heart about these things. And we obviously don't know when Jesus was born exactly, um, and there's certainly nothing wrong with celebrating his birth. 
Um, I believe he was most likely conceived at Hanukkah and was born at Tabernacles. And I think most scholars agree with that, but we don't know that for sure. All right. So what I've seen lately, the reason why I'm talking about this is because there's kind of a religious spirit that has emerged and it's really been attacking Christmas and, and trying to present it as just being some satanic pagan thing or whatever. And certainly the Catholic Church did their best to make it that. But whenever you worship Jesus, it's not satanic or pagan. Okay? So let me give you a few things here. In Romans 14, verse 1. Uh, this is important that we grasp this in a general sense because we don't want to be a religious Pharisee. How many would agree with me tonight? Pastor Scott, I don't want to be a religious Pharisee. Religious Pharisees are not friends of God, okay? Here we go. Romans 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One, now, if you'll follow me, I'm going to try to paint a picture with this, and you're probably, some of you that don't understand per se about food sacrifice to idols and personal convictions in these passages, I'm hoping that you'll really understand it after tonight, okay? He says, verse, chapter, verse 2, for Romans 14, verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard the one, not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted both of them. Amen. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Now this is what we're talking about. I'm using Christmas as an example. But what about somebody that, that observes a Sabbath once a week? as opposed to somebody that doesn't. Or somebody that, that may keep, you know, pass over time and, and another person that doesn't. It says one person will observe one day as being a holy day and, and another person does not, okay? So he who eats and does, he does so for the Lord and he gives, he gives thanks to God and he that does not eat, he does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself, for we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For it is this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account to God, uh, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now here is the key. We have different convictions about some things. You guys know me, and I preach, you know, repentance and things, and I'll tell people, look, you know, you don't need to be doing this, that, and the other. But there are certain things that there's personal convictions about it. 
I'll give you an example. There was a guy that used to chew tobacco for many years, and he got saved. God delivered him from it. And he felt God told him not to even chew gum because it would be a temptation for him to go back to tobacco. I respect his conviction. I respect that. But the problem was, was that he began to try to push it on other people and tell other people they didn't need to chew gum. You see? And he started judging others. So we have personal convictions about certain things. And I've learned over the years a couple things about this that are very important. If God is calling you to go deep into him and to go into his presence in a powerful way and to carry an anointing, the Holy Spirit's not going to let you get away with some things that maybe another Christian seems to get away with. You're not going to feel comfortable with certain movies. You're not going to feel comfortable with certain type of music and other things that that it has a foul message and it has nudity and, and sex and lust and things like that and it, you're just you're not going to feel comfortable with you it's like the holy spirit saying no back off from that get away from that stuff and i believe that all christians should be um, guarding themselves from these things but i'm just making a point that if god's hand is upon you there's going to be something that really pulls you back and sets you apart but when god does that that does not give any of us the right to look down on somebody that doesn't have our conviction. And it also doesn't give those people that seem like they have some kind of freedom there to do things, they shouldn't be passing judgment on you because of your convictions. But rather, we need to just pray for one another and let God deal with them. Amen? This is actually very important because the religious spirit traffics in this stuff very powerfully. All right. But it says here, to the person who thinks something to be unclean, to that person it is unclean. For it is because of food your brother is hurt. See, what was happening was that in this day and time, people would go to pagan temples, and they would go there to worship these pagan gods. And this was very common in this time. And people may be taking animal with them to be sacrificed in the pagan temple. And they would go there with their family. And they would, they would take the animal. That animal would be sacrificed to that pagan god. And maybe they would stay there in that that sacrifice would be cooked for them or it would simply be given to the temple and it'd be sold in the marketplace but it was food sacrificed to idols and sometimes those the family members would pay money they were temple prostitutes that they would have sexual relations it was an act of worship to that deity and that's what was going on and so paul was saying here look some of this food you go into the marketplace you're walking down the marketplace there's all these boots you can imagine back then how nasty this was guys okay they got hanging um meat there flies everywhere but anyway they got these marketplaces you're going through you don't know if this booth has food sacrificed to idols or if the next booth does or whatever it's just a bunch of food out there okay i'm trying to paint a picture he said it's for food that your brothers hurt you are no longer walking according to love do not destroy with your food him whom christ died this will make sense here in a moment therefore do not let what is for you a good thing to be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of god is not eating and drinking but it's righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit for he who is in this way serves christ um, is acceptable to god and approved by men so then we pursue the things which make peace and building up of one another do not tear down the work of god for the sake of food all things indeed are clean but they are evil to the man who eats and gives offense it is not good 
it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything in which will make your brother stumble. The faith which you have has as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But here's the important part. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So here, let me paint the picture now so this will make sense. So you go to the marketplace, you got your Christian brother. You are of the persuasion, which I would be too, that I'm not going to really care whether this chicken right here was sacrificed to Baal or if it was just a chicken. It really doesn't matter. It's just a chicken, okay? And so you buy the chicken, you're going home. But all of a sudden, it's found out that this was sacrificed to a demon god, and that's how it ended up there. And your brother over here in Christ is, oh, my goodness, it was sacrificed to a demon god. We can't partake of this. And so Paul says, well, you know, he, he has less faith. He's weaker in his faith, so he cannot believe God that this is consecrated through prayer to him, it's a sin to eat the chicken. But to you, you have faith, and you believe when you pray over the chicken, everything's going to be okay. You just eat the chicken, right? But Paul said, if you love your brother, to him, it's a sin. And if you still cook that chicken and put it out there for him, to him, he feels like he's sinning against God. And so he's going to eat this thing condemned and feeling like he's doing something wrong and by you forcing the issue you're hurting him spiritually and paul says since you we ought to love one another then just throw away the chicken because you don't want to make your brother stumble in sin and to him it's a sin and you love him and you don't want to hurt him All right, so some of the things that, that fall under this category with the chicken. Um, I heard some people be real negative. This is just from, just from religious crowds. Some of you may not have a clue what I'm talking about, but some of the relig- religious people out there, that there's some of them, it's a small group, but are real anti-Christmas, things like that. And they'll have a real problem with like a Christmas tree, for example. How many knows that God made the tree? And um, it's kind of like, I'll give you a few examples. One is that, one of the symbols of the occult is an owl. Did y'all know that? The wise owl. Did y'all know that owls are actually stupid? So that's interesting. But anyway, the wise owl, right? And that's a symbol of the occult. But God made the owl. I saw one owl at the zoo that I thought surely was demon-possessed. You guys remember that? I took a picture. It's the ugliest owl I've ever seen in my life. A harpy, it was a harpy owl or something or harpy eagle. Google it. Okay, I'm telling you, it was an ugly bird. It, it's kind of scary. I took a picture. But God made the owl, and there's nothing evil about the owl, even though to some people it's a symbol of the occult. And just like, for example, let's, I'm going to give you a few examples. The Star of David. The Star of David is um, Israel's symbol, and it's probably derived from David's name in Hebrew. The letter D looks kind of like a seven a little bit. And if you turn it and put it all the way around, you can make the Star of David. And a lot of people believe that's how they derive the star from David's name. Okay, But anyway, there are people in the occult that use the Star of David or the six-pointed star in satanic rituals. But there's also 
where it's just simply um, Israel's flag. So it's not evil in and of itself. It depends on the context. Is this, is this making sense to anybody? So, you know, and it's kind of like um, a cross. You know, we have a cross right there. A cross is a symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. But there's some people out there that worship the devil, and they'll take a cross, they turn it upside down, and they use it in their ritual. So does that make all crosses evil? No. If you were to take any tree, I don't care what kind of tree it is, and you were to bow down and worship and pray to the tree, you're making an idol out of that tree. Amen? (laughs) If you think by having that tree that you're going to have good luck, power, protection over your enemies... And that that tree is somehow going to protect you or empower you somehow. And you're making an idol out of the tree. And if you cut that tree up and you whittle it away and make some little demon gods out of it, some wood idols, and you begin to pray to those things and worship them, then that's obviously sin. But if a tree is just decoration, then it's just decoration. Does that make sense? And whenever I see around Christmas time, and I suspect this is probably where this originated in the hearts of somebody somewhere. But Galatians 3.13 says this. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us so the blessings given to Abraham come on us. And we've received the spirit by faith. So when I see a Christmas tree... I see the reason Jesus came in this world was to down a tree for me. Okay? And I see those lights, and I see the fact that God has called us to be a light in this world, and that all around the world, Jesus has got lights all throughout this world, the Christians that are shining bright for him. That's what I see. But I understand that some people may see something different, but that's between them and God. But from what I understand in Romans 14... I believe we're just supposed to love each other and be okay with that. Amen? I'm not going to judge them. They're not supposed to judge me. That's the way it's supposed to be. But see, a religious spirit gets in, and they begin to think, well, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong, and if you don't do it my way, then you're wrong. That's a religious spirit about these sort of things. All right, so let me read one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I told you all this was a different sermon for me. Okay, so I believe believe it'll be advantageous. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have, we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. You know what? That is true. The King James says knowledge puffs up. Some people are too smart by half. You know what I mean by that? They, they, they get a little bit of knowledge and now they're smarter than everybody else. And they're arrogant. But he says, but love edifies. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for him, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty, get this, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If you feel you have some kind of liberty, don't use your liberty to stumble another person. You know, Jesus said this. I'm just going to say, just quote what he said. He said, if, if we're a stumbling block to one of his little ones, he said, it would be better for me or you to have a millstone, which was a big round rock that they used to grind wheat. They have a big millstone tied around our neck and thrown into the sea than it would be for those that cause his little ones to stumble. For if someone sees you, see now you're, you're eating the chicken, okay? If somebody sees you and that you're dining in an idol's temple or whatever, with, will, not have, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So in other words, you've got to be careful that something you do does not cause another person to sin. Avoiding the appearance of evil. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes your brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause my brother to stumble. And I believe Paul meant that. Paul was saying, look, if it's going to be an issue, I'll just be a vegetarian. You know? And that's a big commitment, man. <laughs> All right, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm, I'm getting off this now, but let me just finish one more thing here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing by which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. So remember, the cup is held up. Jesus held the cup and he blessed it. And this was the um, communion that Jesus instituted. He took it out of the Passover meal. And it's something that he's given to the church to be taken as often as we desire. Okay. But he said, this cup of Christ and the bread which we break, sharing in the body of Christ, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice to these pagan demon gods, okay, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become a sharer in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and cup of demons. So this is what he's saying here. Picture this. Picture there's a family that came and maybe somebody witnessed them. They accept Christ as their Savior. But they're still used to going to the pagan temples. Maybe certain times of the year they're supposed to go worship this demon god. So the time of year comes, and they take their little animal sacrifice, and they got their, their wife and kids. Here they go. They're going to the local pagan temple. 
And they're going to offer this animal as a sacrifice to this demon god, and the, the satanic priests that are there are going to cut up the animal and sacrifice it to this demon god. And, and maybe they're going to participate in some uh, you know, temple prostitution stuff and all that. And so here they are doing this. They're, they're worshiping this demon, and they're fellowshipping in this altar. See, by participating in this, they're participating in the altar. Then they're going to turn around and go back home. And they're going to get up next church day, and they're going to come to the Christian church and sit in church, and when it's time to take Holy Communion, they're going to sit as a family and take communion. How many knows it don't work that way? You've got to choose this day who you're going to serve. Either you're going to tr- serve the one true God and you're going to forsake these demon gods, or you're going to go back to them, but you can't do both. And that's what Paul's saying here. He said, you do not do this. You don't partake of the table of the Lord and then go partake of tables of demons and worship demon gods. Or do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than him, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything. Look, this is what he's saying. Look, when you go through the marketplace, eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you, and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking any question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of that person who informed you in their conscience, I mean not your conscience, but the other man's conscience, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning what I give thanks for? So Paul is saying, why would people criticize me because I have this freedom? So whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. But look at this, give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that many may be saved. So in other words, he's saying, look, I'm convinced in my own mind about this, that I'm fine but for your sake, I'll abstain. But why should you judge me? Let me tell you one of the greatest ways to overcome a religious spirit. Okay, here we go. Become like a child. And let me explain that. Remember they said, who's the greatest? And Jesus took a little child and said, be like a child. I'm not talking about being immature. I'm not talking about being stupid because how many knows little kids? I was a little kid. Little kids can be stupid sometimes. But what God is saying here is that children are humble and they're teachable. And here's the thing. Children have faith. If you tell a little kid, hey, this is, and you can tell them a crazy story. They'll believe it. Children believe. I believe that God wants us to be humble, teachable, Little children are quick to forgive. They're quick to say, I'm sorry about something. But they also have faith. And here's the greatest way to conquer a religious spirit, but you've got to have faith, is that you tell the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I know that you've been sent to live in me and to be with me. And Jesus said in John 14, 
that the reason you came, Holy Spirit, was to lead me into all truth. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to show me, is this right or not? I want to know. Convict me. Make it clear to me. You know, when you get up in a situation where you're not sure either way, the Holy Spirit will show you. In a child, a humble person that has faith, they will simply trust the Holy Spirit to convict them and help them. But see, people that are real intellectual and in the realm of human reason, reasoning and intellect, they have a hard time getting in the realm of the Spirit of God just speaking to their spirit. And see, somebody that's just childlike, they'll, they'll depend on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit won't let you get away with stuff. If, you, if you're sitting in a movie theater and something's going on, the Holy Spirit will tell you. I mean, you'll feel so convicted. It's time to go. What's going on isn't pleasing God. It's not edifying you. It's defiling you. Get out. And the Holy Spirit won't let you just get away with it. He'll stay on you. But if you keep resisting the Holy Spirit over and over and over, he'll eventually let you have what you want, but it'll distance you from God. But the Spirit of God, he's with us to be the one to lead us into truth and convict and help us. So what we've got to understand is that there's going to be certain things that are going to be gray areas where one person may feel like they're fine with that and another person not. But you need to keep that to yourself. Did everybody hear that part right there? If you feel something's fine, then just between you and God, keep it to yourself because your liberty could be a stumbling block to somebody else. So don't, don't share it publicly where somebody else may struggle. Now, here's the last couple things. You may learn something tonight. This is different. This, this is unique. But I feel like it's important because I don't want River of Life as we grow to have a religious spirit about us. We're not better than anybody. But for the grace of God, we would be heathen out there serving the devil today. Okay? We're no better than anybody. And um, I just want us to make sure that we understand some of these things because it will keep the religious spirit out of our midst. And uh, anyway, so 1 Timothy 4, 4, I'm going to show you, some, show you something here where it seems like two scriptures clash, but they don't. How many of you guys know God did not have a problem writing the Bible? The Holy Spirit, he didn't struggle writing the Bible. He didn't mess up. He knows what he's doing. But it's just that we sometimes have a problem understanding the Bible. And we need the Holy Spirit, the author, to help us understand so this right here is a good example of this. In 1 Timothy 4, 4, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. So, you're in a situation where there's this food that's been sacrificed to a demon god or something. Maybe you're on the mission field, and you get something weird there. The Bible says that you can pray over it, It'll be sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But then we have this situation <clears throat> where Jesus appears to John and he's talking about a church that was tolerating a Jezebel spirit. And he was rebuking this church, okay? But listen to what he said. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel 
and to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of, acts of sexual immorality. Which is interesting, again, we go back to this culture where you go to a temple and you're sacrificing to demon gods and there's temple prostitution. It's the same garbage. Okay, so Jesus is saying that this is a stumbling block. So let me show you something that, that I believe answers this question because these scriptures do not conflict. But here's how a Jezebel spirit works. Y'all ready for this one? How many knows that the devil will operate like a seducing spirit to try to entice people to do things they're not supposed to do? Everybody agree with that? All right, here we go. This is how a Jezebel spirit will work. If you're sitting there and you've, you've got that chicken that I was talking about and your friend over here is convicted and doesn't want to eat the chicken, a Jezebel spirit will try to just seduce and entice him to do it anyway and compromise his convictions. A Jezebel spirit, a seducing spirit, a brother over here says, I don't feel comfortable watching this movie. And a Jezebel spirit, a seducing spirit will say, oh, don't be stupid, you'll be fine. And will try to entice them and seduce them to do something that violates their conscience. I don't feel comfortable going to this place and hanging out here. Oh, you'll be fine, do it anyway. That's what Jesus is talking about. That, that Jezebel spirit, it's a seducing spirit that will try to get people to compromise their personal convictions. How many of you guys can say, Pastor Scott, I've actually had a time where I felt like somebody was trying to get me to compromise my convictions, because I have. You have to determine within yourself, I personally don't feel good about this. What you do is your business, but I'm not doing it. And somebody's trying to entice you, don't offend God and violate your conscience. It's not worth it. How many knows we need to be leaders into righteousness, not followers into unrighteousness? So here's the last couple of things. A religious spirit is a deadly spirit that traffics through mental strongholds. One of the greatest strongholds of religious spirit is in the mind. We've got to pull down the old ways of thinking. The religious spirit will always want to go backwards. It wants people, for example, these are just examples, but to go back to like old king james version if you have a modern version then it's you're wrong you're not right with god that type of thing go back to old hymns if you sing modern worship you're of the devil right it's a religious it talks about old revivals oh how god moved back in the days of finney yeah he did man he did praise god but they won't like current revivals you start talking about revival going on somewhere in the world oh that's a bunch of garbage it's like you know you're okay with the one a hundred years ago and the same stuff's going on up the road. You don't like that one? It's a religious spirit. And see, the interesting thing is, some of these that are real religious, it's all about the 1611 King James Version only. Okay, well, here's the thing with that. The 1611 King James Version had an apocrypha. Hello? And um, it's not the best translation from Greek and Hebrew, honestly. It's pretty good, but hey, whatever. Anyway, but they hate modern free worship. That, you know, a religious spirit, they see people dancing, singing, clapping, shouting, getting free in their worship, and they're all sitting back like this all mad. You know, and they're, they're just angry that people are acting like this. This is just offending God, you know, and they can't stand the freedom. A religious spirit is great deception because of religious Pharisee. What you've got to understand is 
the religious Pharisees of Jesus' day, man, they knew the Bible. I'm, I'm talking about the Torah, the first five books. They, I promise you, they knew it frontward, backward. They probably had most of it memorized, and that's not an exaggeration. They really knew it. But you can know the word and still be an enemy of the gospel. And the Pharisees believed, I guarantee you, they believed with every fiber of their being that by opposing Jesus, by opposing his message, by opposing his disciples, and by hanging him on that cross and ridding the earth of this heretic, that they were totally being used of God. But they were 100% being used of the devil. But God permitted it because there was a bigger cause. Amen? All right, so it's a religious deception. A religious spirit will cause people to have unrighteous judgment, which was what Paul was trying to say. Don't judge people by where they're at in their convictions and stuff because you know what? Maybe 10 years down the road, they're going to have different convictions as they get closer to Jesus. It's not our place to be all critical people. He's saying don't be critical, don't be cynical. Another thing is fault-finding and debating. Let me tell you something. When you're dealing with these things, you can't try to fight a religious spirit with a religious spirit. Somebody wants to debate. They're, they're baiting you, man. They're trying to suck you into a fight. And they want to debate you about something. If you're not careful, you're going to become a little Pharisee yourself and start going at them. And here you go. You're fighting a religious spirit being used of a religious spirit. The only fruit that's coming out of that is bad. Okay? What's that saying? No good thing will come from this. No good thing will come from that fight. You overcome by having the opposite spirit. Jesus said, I send you like lambs among wolves. The people of this world are like the wolves. They have the nature of Satan. But we're supposed to be like the lambs that have the nature of Christ. A religious spirit is all about legalism and bondage. All right, let me try to move quickly now. But the good and bad... Um, I deeply, deeply love our Hebrew roots. I can't get off this too fast. I do, and um, I love our Messianic brothers and sisters. I love it very much. What you have to understand, though, I'm just going to make this statement, whether it's a Messianic group or whether it's a, a, a Baptist church or whether it's a Methodist church or whether it's an Assembly God church or whether it's a non-denominational church, if there's not a move of the Spirit of God, if there's not healings, if there's not people getting delivered, if the gifts of the Spirit are not at work, I don't care what you call it, it's not a New Testament church. Amen? Now, that's the truth. That was a good place to say amen. Okay. All right. And there's much to gain from these different groups. How many of you guys have been in the faith long enough that you can see there's like the faith movement, there's the prayer movement, there's the worship movement, there's this movement, and, and all of them have some amazing, wonderful things to glean from. Uh, wonderful. Um, probably every movement that I can think of, I have been tremendously blessed by some of the teaching and what I've learned. But every movement, every group, will also have some fringe people off that are just a little bit off in some areas. Extremes. Going too far. And they get off in their teaching or whatever. Well, it's the same way with some of the Messianic movement that, you know, it's a feeling that you, it has to be this certain way, and if it's not this certain way, it's not going to be right, okay? And you have to be careful that nobody's bringing you into bondage. 
So no matter what the name on the, the, the church is, if you're going in and you've got the announcements, you've got a couple songs, then you've got this, then you've got this, and you've got this, and it's the same religious ritual that you're going through every week, the Spirit of God isn't coming in and moving. Something is wrong. A religious spirit is sitting on that church. And here's just some of the things with the, the Messianic movement, which I love deeply. I want you to know that we're, you know, very involved, really, with much of that. But there's certain things that, that are not good that with the fringe. Let me give you an example. One is that every year around the season called Teshuva, where um, Yom Kippur is taking place and people are repenting and getting right, the mindset is is that you've got to get your name rewritten once again in the book of life. And that's not good. Because how many of you guys know when you accept Christ as your Savior that he's written your name in the Lamb's book of life? And you don't have to keep re-getting saved every year. Is this making sense? I'm just trying to show you that every movement has some wonderful good things, but some things that you're like, okay, we don't need to. And this is a religious spirit. I've even heard some people that are real negative about the New Testament because it all seems to just be like the Old Testament, Hebrew, anything New Testament is secondary. But that's an old mentality. Isn't it interesting that God took the lampstand, which we have a symbol of that there, but with Moses, he had him create those, uh, was it the bowl, the knob, and the blossom that went up the lampstand on each one, and there was a total of 66. And if you looked at the lampstand and you had the middle branch going left there was 39 on this side 27 on this side and it was a picture and type of the 66 books of the bible that we have today 39 in the old and 27 in the new and god was saying that all of it is his word his light and there's too much of a focus sometimes on names now this thing, when I copy and pasted this, I'm going to put this disclaimer, it switched it, okay? But anyway, Hebrews read from right to left and English from left to right. And if you copy and paste Hebrew on an English document, it's going to flip-flop it for you, okay? So just so you know. But I didn't catch that until after it was already printed, so just bear with it. I'll try to fix it later. All right, but anyway, some people put too much of a focus on the names. Listen to this. The name of God, the yud heh is Yahweh. We know that. And we know the name of Jesus in, in Hebrews, Yeshua. But here's the point. I've been down in Mexico and seen some powerful preachers say in El Nombre de Jesus and demons fleeing everywhere. So, you know, and look at Carlos Anaconda in the Argentine revival. And I've seen people use the name of Jesus and I've seen people use the name of Yeshua. But the point isn't that it has to be pronounced a certain way. And that the demons are going to flee at the name of Jesus. However, his name is pronounced in that language. To see a religious spirit, it has to be a certain way. Demons are not scared unless you say Yeshua. Oh, please. <laughs> I've got way too much experience with that to believe that garbage. All right. A religious Pharisee, and I need to close now, but look at this. Will feel with every fiber of their being that they're right, but they're wrong. See, some of those that come out of the occult world, they have a background coming out of Satanism, witchcraft, the occult. They have a tendency. And I minister to a lot of these people. My wife has that 
testimony herself, and, and we have friends that have had that testimony. But anyway, if they're not careful, they have a tendency to have like a conspiracy, negative, cynical view about things, like their worldview. They're too focused on the devil. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these goofy preachers that say you just need to ignore the devil either, okay? We're called to be warriors and overcome. You go right through it. But you discern it and defeat it, okay? But at the same time, I don't live my life focused on the devil. I live my life focused on Jesus. But if he shows up, I know he's there. And I deal with it. Now, during this time of the year, whenever you have Christmas... What a lot of people don't know in Christianity is that it's also a very, very dark time with groups that are in Satanism and the occult. Uh, it has to do with the Yuletide season. But unfortunately, there, there really are like human sacrifice and, and Satan worship going on. But you know what? If you're going to sit around at home and you're totally focused on that, and that's what you're focused on, then don't be surprised if you feel depressed and oppressed. Pray about it. You know, and ask God to move and, and, and whatever you feel like you need to do, but then focus on Jesus. So here's the last point. The religious spirit that, catch this, Satan wants to remove all trace of Christ from society. That's what the religious Pharisees of Jesus' day were trying to do. They said, let's stir up the crowd to yell crucify him and let's rid the earth of him. Let's get rid of him. Wipe him out of society that he's gone. And one of the last traces of, in our culture, in America anyway, of where Jesus is freely talked about and acknowledged is during Christmas time. And isn't it interesting that the religious Pharisees, once again, are joining with the Roman soldiers, the atheists, and they want to rid society of Jesus. Get rid of this Christmas garbage. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. But the religious Pharisees believe with every fiber of their being, by me opposing Christmas, I am right, and it's, it's some pagan, evil, horrible thing, and uh, it needs to be gone from society. But what they don't understand is they believe with every fiber of their being that they're right. But what they're doing is they're trying to purge Christ out of society. You realize how much during this Christmas time people talk about Jesus? How much glory he's getting? Everywhere you go as you see a nativity. And that's why Satan hates it, because it's glorifying Christ. And God hates division among his people. Over and over you read Romans sixteen seventeen. Mark a divisive person, avoid him. Titus says, warn him once, warn him again, then don't even associate with divisive people. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 talks about God hates the one that sows discord among the brethren. God hates division. So when it comes to these personal convictions about things, like whether or not you're going to keep Christmas or not, it's something that people ought to just respect each other's convictions. My, life, my wife loves Christmas, and so, you know, that's... But my point is, if somebody came to me and said, man, I just don't celebrate Christmas, I'd say, hey, that's fine. I, don't really, I really don't care. But the thing is that there's people that make such an issue about these little things. And what are they doing? They're dividing up God's people into factions that argue, debate, and fight about stupid stuff that don't matter. I believe that there's a blessing associated with Christmas. I really do. 
But I'm not going to focus on Satan's counterfeit times either. You become what you're beholding. This is my last point here. This is a long word tonight, okay? I know, but I had to preach this. The Holy Spirit, I was under restraint, okay? He told me to preach it. So y'all just understand. Here we go. Here's the last point is this. St. Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently on what was... I laugh when I read that because David Hogan said one time, he said, I want every single thing that was in the Bible to happen before I die. And he said, Moses' face shine. So he said, I want my face like a light bulb, and it's not going off. And he was all serious about it, you know. All right. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed by Christ. So this day, it's sad because many of the Jewish people have a veil over them of Moses, and they're blinded to the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very sad. But whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, uh, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So, in other words, as you're beholding the Lord, you're being transformed more and more into His image because you're beholding Him. You're focused on Him. Lot pitched his tent focused towards Sodom. Next thing you know, he's inside Sodom. Next thing you know, his family's perverted. Next thing you know, his wife is a, a pile of salt, and his daughters are sexually perverted, and his sons-in-laws are all killed. You, you, what you're staring at and what you're focusing on is what you're becoming. In Romans 11, 11, I say then, do not stumble as to fall. Did they talk about the Jewish people? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, the Jews, so that they may be saved. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, then their acceptance of Christ will be life from the dead. If the first piece of the dough was holy, the lump also, the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were engrafted into that and being a partaker of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant over the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now what he's saying here is Abraham was the root. He's the root system. God called Abraham he made his covenant with Abraham, and that's the root system. For 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, all those Jewish people and other Gentiles that came in that were proselytes were in that root system. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he raised from the dead the, the son of God, the king, uh, son of David, okay, the great high priest, um, the true ultimate prophet of God, all those things, when he raised from the dead... Everybody is now required to look to him for salvation. And those that refused to do that were broken off. They were Jews, but they were broken off that tree and cast aside. And God said, you don't want salvation. It goes to the Gentiles. So he reaches over and begins to grab Gentiles and graft them into that tree.
He says this in Romans 11, 25, Don't be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all of Israel will be saved. So God's allowed this so the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. Oh, there's always been Jewish people saved for the last 2,000 years. There's There's always been. But the overwhelming majority have rejected him by and large. But there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to split the eastern sky. His feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. They're going to split in two. And he's going to go into Jerusalem. And he's going to sit enthroned in the throne of David in the temple. And he's going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And in that time, the Jewish people that are alive and remain are going to be gathered into him and they're going to see him. The Bible says they're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to mourn and they're going to realize he really was the Messiah. And it's going to be just like Joseph who his brothers didn't recognize him until he said, I am Joseph. And all of his brothers wept bitterly because they realized, hey, we threw him in a well. We rejected him. We didn't want him. All right, so this weird, unique sermon is now over, and um, I feel it's made its point, though. It's very different, but I, I really believe that God is saying for us in the days to come that he's not wanting there to be a religious spirit. I believe this, and we're going to pray for people who want prayer, but that the more of a religious spirit that there is, it's like a glass that's, that's got water and air. The more air, water you have, the less air, but there's, you're not going to have a vacuum. There's going to be one or the other. The more of a religious spirit that somebody has, the less of the power of God, the resurrection power of God is going to be operating. But, the, but if you really get free from this religious spirit, there's a flow of the anointing. But you're going to have to pull down old mental strongholds. Some of this stuff is up in the second heaven. It's a religious spirit over regions. And we cannot have our minds agreeing with it. If your mind's in agreement with a religious spirit, it brings a bondage. And once people begin to agree with these things, and they keep agreeing and keep agreeing with these these principalities and garbage, then it's like something can come through their mind area and begin to really oppress them. But God is wanting us to pull down every stronghold and press into this last day anointing that he has. So as people are, we're doing this church plant, people are going to be getting saved in the days to come, and they're going to be coming in here, and um, they're going to be, you know, like baby Christians are. They're still going to be struggling with things, and we need to love them and understand and let the Holy Spirit do his job and pray for them and help them to overcome, but not be religious Pharisees. Amen? All right, so Lord, we thank you for the awesome power of your presence, your spirit, and Lord, for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord. Help us to not be religious Pharisees. Help us not to be a judgmental and critical people. Um, there's some that their faith is weak, and, and maybe they, they don't understand the freedom of another. But help us, Lord, those that fall into that category to not be critical of those because of their freedom. And Lord, those that may have freedoms, not to look down on and criticize others that don't. Help us, Lord, just to love one another and and trust God to deal with all that stuff. We thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, I pray tonight that as we're going to be praying for people, let there be a powerful breakthrough. I feel like there's maybe some religious bondage that, that some people need to get free from. Lord, give breakthroughs tonight in Jesus' name.
We thank you for it. 